Right, so if you turn to the end of the bundle of notes, um, what's called lecture four, the end doesn't justify the means. Uh, this bundle is what we're going to look at all afternoon. Um, and I'm going to try and break it into two sections um, because there's just a limit to how much you can concentrate on without having a break. Um, but I do have this impossible task I've been given of giving you all of moral theology in four days. Um, so there's going to be quite a lot to cover this afternoon. So we're going to break this afternoon into two sections. One, the end doesn't justify the means. And then we're going to look at what at first glance seems to contradict that, namely cooperating evil. But the first thing is to be clear on this principle, the end doesn't justify the means. So the very opposite of that is what we often hear said, which is, well, you do the lesser of two evils. Um, now just thinking as we are of uh, the Americans, um, so you might think that Trump is the lesser of the two evils of Trump and Hillary. Um, but in that context, we're talking about two evil individuals, or probably two evil packages of political behaviours that will go with those two candidates. And you're saying one is a lesser evil than the other. Now that's very different when we're looking at the behaviour I as an individual doing, would do, and say, well, if I do this, I'm doing something evil. If I do that, I'm doing something evil. I'll do the thing that is less evil. That isn't a Catholic way of thinking. The Catholic way of thinking is to say, I may not do evil. And if I've only got before me a choice of two evils, then actually I'm not looking at things right. That it's always possible not to sin. Um, and so when people say, well, you choose the lesser of two evils, they're either not seeing clearly or there's another option they're not really considering. So, the first page of the notes you have there, um, I've put what I've called three key notions on that front page. And each of those key notions actually is a rephrasing of the same thing slightly differently. So let me run through this first page before we think about anything more specifically. So first, key notion one. There are some things which may, there are some things which may never be done. Somebody else's. Now, this is what we call, as I said here, intrinsically evil acts. Um, so, intrinsic meaning it's in the thing, in the act itself. There is an evil in the act that you can't get out of the act, which means it's always evil. Um, now, note I've said that something. So not everything that is wrong is always wrong. Not everything that is wrong is wrong because there's an evil inside it, intrinsic to it. Some things are wrong because of their place in a certain circumstance or because of the motive we're doing it for. The point in this context is there are, however, there are some things that are evil intrinsically in the deed itself, regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the motive, the deed itself 
intrinsically is always evil. I then quoted John Paul II in Veritas's Splendor in 1993. He famously reiterated this teaching in the face of um, there's a whole body of Catholic dissent on this teaching, what were called proportionalists, who in short argued there's always a proportionate reason in which any deed might sometimes be allowed. Sometimes it'd be very rare, very rare, but that there'd always be any deed, some cases, there would be a proportionate reason to justify. So he said the reverse, and quoting what he says there, in teaching the existence of intrinsically evil acts, the church accepts the teaching of sacred scripture. And in this obviously, in a sense, he's raising the, the debate um, stakes quite high. He's saying, if you're denying this, you're denying revelation. You're denying the Bible. And then he gave the example, as I've quoted there from 1 Corinthians. Do you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the immoral, nor adulterers, nor uh, idolaters, nor sexual perverts, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. The scripture lists all those things and doesn't say, unless you're doing it for a good motive. No, that these are things, if you do, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's key notion one. There are some things that you may simply never do because they are intrinsically evil. Second key notion is rephrasing the same thing really but quoting the catechism there one may not do evil so that good may result. Quoting John Paul II it is never lawful even for the gravest of reasons to do evil that good may come. And he quotes the classic text of Romans 3.8. There are those who say, and why not do evil that good may come? Their condemnation is just. Rephrase key notion three. The end doesn't justify the means. I've said that this principle is frequently cited as the difference between modern between Catholic ethics and modern secular ethics. So in our English context, especially utilitarian ethics with John Stuart Mill and so forth, says that you would simply do whatever has the best consequences. So it's the end, the consequences, that defines whether the means is good or not. So that the modern notion is, well, you know, the end justifies the means. This is, you know, what we hear people say. Or as I've said, that I, the means has no moral significance apart from the end, which is what consequentialism <coughs> contains. So as I've said there, when we talk about the means, for Catholics to claim that the end does not justify the means implies that the means can be evaluated apart from the end. So there are three things we're going to look at um, in all of this. We're going to look at the end, which is, largely speaking, the intention. We're going to look at the means, how you get to the end, which more precisely is called the object. Um, 
And there's a, a third thing, the circumstances. <coughs> All three of which um, are called the sources of morality. And so if you're trying to assess an object at an act and know whether it's good or evil, these are the three elements, aspects of the act that you look at. Now, I've put at the bottom of the page there two examples, because examples always clarify. One I've taken from um, television, so I don't know if any of you watched the Jack Bauer 24 uh, series. <laughs> um, uh, so I've taken a particular episode of season three. And in the context, there's a terrorist who demands that the US government give him the dead body of Ryan Chappelle who is, at that time, actually a living US government agent. So the terrorist says, kill him and give me his body. You know, wants it within the hour, or he'll explode atomic bombs. The government needs to buy time to track the terrorist, and so the US president thus commands our hero, Jack Bauer, to kill Chappelle. And Bauer, the good guy, does in fact kill Chappelle. Now the government eventually does track down the terrorists before explosions occur. And so it seems, here's a classic example, the end justifies the means. Terrible thing to have shot this guy, but it stopped the bombs going off, saved the day. And these examples abound in our modern literature, TV and so forth. Then given the classic example from St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, Sorry, I'm just delay things, but it occurs to me that if Jack Bauer is under such compulsion um, that he does something that he cannot avoid doing. I mean, I know we're saying that he can always avoid doing, he can always take another, make another choice if it brings about his own destruction, but to be and in fear, shall we say, um, he's, a, he's, a, he's in such fear for himself that he does this, does it not change the um, culpability of the action? Changes the culpability, and thinking here would change the degree of consent, um, or it could change the consent. Um, but um, actually that's blurring the question of what's right and wrong. So here, in what we're looking at this afternoon, we're not actually considering the seriousness of whether it's right or wrong, or, um, or whether you're consenting. We're, we're thinking, is it evil or is it good? Right. Yeah. Um, it's going to be attributable as well, isn't it? Sorry? Is it Jack Barrow's being, who's committing the evil act, or is it the government? Because they have Actually, both. So, so, the, so the president does something evil by commanding Jack Bauer to do something evil. And in that example, what has been obscured is the question of who is responsible. Mm. So the man who is responsible for the atomic bombs going off is the terrorist. And by saying, well, if we give him the dead body of this living agent, he'll then not put the bombs off. Actually, you don't have any guarantee of that. He might take the dead body and set the bombs off. Which indicates that actually it's the terrorist who is responsible for the atomic bombs, not, not you. 
And usually in all of these examples, it's precisely that failure to distinguish who is responsible um, that causes the confusion. Now the next example, um, which is from the, the classic example from the tradition, um, has, illustrates the very same point. So a woman's husband is held captive by a king, and the king will kill the man unless the wife sleeps with the king. So there's a good end here, saving the life of the husband, but a bad means, sleeping with a man who is not her husband, namely the king. Does the end justify the means? So St. Thomas in the tradition said no. Most proportionists say yes. So when I was at seminary, my seminary professor was one of these proportionists who was condemned by Veritas Splendor, even while I was being taught by him, the encyclical came out. Um, it says you're not hanging, you know? <laughs> Well, you laugh, but actually, I my dissertation for my STB was on proportionalism, and I've often reflected how much did I compromise my own soul. For the, um, I did that with my ethics professor. I yeah. wrote the, an essay which I thought was all right, but um, no. whereas I wrote an essay that the guy marking it gave me a summer for, ah. which I think indicated I'd, I'd hedged my, covered over my opinions so carefully um, that I'd said, well, some people say this and some people say that. Um, anyway. Um, my professor at the seminary said, well, if she loves her husband, of course she's going to sleep with the king. Of course she wants to save his life. She loves him. Um, she's just glossing over completely the question of what's, what's right and wrong. Um, I'm phrasing everything in terms of the end. So all this, in a sense, is introduced, introductory, but you all are clear about what's at stake here. Yeah? Clear about what's at stake, but also clear about how um, how numerous are the, the kind of examples that we get given to us of these kinds of things. Can you just be really obvious and say what's at stake? Um, well, there's all kinds of things at stake. Um, in the recent tradition of the church, um, contraception was the example where this was... Um, hammered out. So proportionalism was developed as a system that would say, well, you want the end of the good of the happy couple and you accept the evil of contraception to get to that end. So they, they would accept contraception as an evil but you want the good end of the happy marriage. Um, and so proportionalism was all developed as a system to with all kinds of nuances and clever terminology and whatever, uh, hammered all that out. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, William May, I think, puts it best when he says what proportionism did um, is that it um, clouded the issue rather than clarified it. Um, and that proper thinking should actually make what is before us more clearly seen 
rather than less clearly seen. And of course, statistically now, two generations after humanity and the sexual revolution, um, contraception doesn't result in happy marriages. You know, at a society-wide level, the contraceptive society isn't a society of happy marriages. Um, but even as Janet Smith's book, um, I don't know if you maybe you'd have seen her book, called uh, Humana Vitae, A Generation After. So it's written in the 90s, when there was a whole generation since Humana Vitae had come out. And she cites various statistical surveys that had been done even at that stage that showed that even at an individual level, couples who contracept have a much statistically higher chance of divorcing than couples who don't contracept. Whereas the discipline of natural family planning the communication that's required in the natural family planning actually builds and solidifies a marriage, resulting in less divorce rather than more. What was the author called? Uh, Janet Smith. Smith. Smith, yeah. Um, so that Paul VI, when he produced Humanabite, prophesied, among other things, that marriage would be weakened. Um, and that women wouldn't be treated with respect. Um, and at the time, he was ridiculed. Because of course, contraception would make for happier marriages and happier families. Um, and yet, sadly, he's been proved right. <coughs> so that really um, is the practical, no, no, the, the historical context in which this debate has been argued out within the Catholic Church the last half century. But it's always been a debate in all of history, because um, and the fact that St. Thomas, among others, was looking at examples of this, it's not a new debate. It's just new that there were Catholics who were trying to reverse the conclusion. Right, page two. the first little section there, I've said the moral evaluation of human acts, uh, which I'm quoting more fully what I've already written on the board here. The morality of human acts depends on, first, the object chosen, which basically means the means to the end. Secondly, the end in view, or the intention. And thirdly, the circumstances of the action. So the Catechism says the object, the intention, and the circumstances make up the three sources or constitutive elements of the morality of human acts. And the key point is, as I've said there, for an act to be good, all three aspects must be good. Whereas for an act to be evil, only one aspect needs to be evil. That one flaw corrupts the integrity of the whole. Now, an analogy I often give for this is um, poison. So if you have a meal um, and one part of the meal is poisoned, I poison the vegetables, but the meat's still good for you, the chips are still good for you, the meal is poisonous. The fact that I am only eating the vegetables for the sake of having the nice steak that they're with um, is poisonous. If one part's poisonous, the whole is poisonous because it's the whole that I eat. I don't just eat one bit of it. So that if one bit of it is evil and I'm choosing 
a package that includes that bit, then I'm choosing evil. Back to my notes. So I then quoted St. Thomas Aquinas's uh, axiom summarizing this. Evil results from any single defect, but good from the complete cause. I, for an act to be good, it must have a good object and a good end, and must also be good in the context of its circumstances. If any element in the act is bad, then the whole act becomes morally vitiated. Then quoted some examples from the Catechism. A good intention, for example, that of helping one's neighbour, does not make behaviour that is intrinsically disordered, such as lying and calumny, good or just. The end does not justify the means. Thus, the condemnation of an innocent person cannot be justified as the legitimate means of saving the nation. On the other hand, an added bad intention, such as vanity, makes an act evil that in and of itself can be good, such as almsgiving. So do I need to spell out the, that these are two examples that are from the Gospels? Um, obviously the condemnation of our Lord to save the nation, but also our Lord giving the example of giving money into the temple treasury. So it's an act that, in that case, the, mean, um, the object is good, giving money to the temple treasury, but the bad intention of vanity corrupts the whole. So for the act to be good, it all needs to be good. Whereas one evil corrupts the whole. Let me phrase it this way. Um, if you think about what you choose, you choose the end but you also choose the means to get there. So if this is me, yes, I choose the end, but I also choose the means to get there. So that my will is set upon both. And it's when you will evil that it becomes moral evil. That's what we mean by moral evil, is a will that you have, an, an evil that you have will. And because you will both the means and the ends, if either is evil, it becomes morally evil, because your will is willing evil. Let me read through my notes on the page that say that just in a slightly more precise form. So I ask the question, why does one evil part vitiate the whole? An act is only a human act inasmuch as it emanates from the will enlightened by reason. So the standard contrast here would be an act of a human, like falling over, isn't the same as a human act choosing to fall over. And an act is only moral when it is will. This is what we mean by a human. An act is morally evil inasmuch as the will wills evil. And the will bears not only on the end but also on the means to the end. 
Thus both are sources of the morality of the act. If the will chooses an evil object, then the will chooses evil, even if it is intending a good end. Then quoting the Catechism, the object of the choice can by itself vitiate an act in its entirety. There are some concrete acts, such as fornication, that it is always wrong to choose, because choosing them entails a disorder of the will, that is, a moral evil. In the next line, I'm making a slightly different point, but by doing evil, you become an evildoer. By action, reflexively changes your character. That's a slightly different argument, even if it comes to the same conclusion. That when I do evil, that rebounds back on me, it changes me. Any thoughts before we turn the page? Um, we have a duty to do so, so I suppose part of how I'd answer it. Um, but I'd also say that we make a distinction between... Um, so I can't think of the phrase. Moral certitude. So I can't have metaphysical certitude about certain things. Like I, I know with metaphysical certitude that 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's just a matter of logic, a matter of maths. There isn't any doubt or room for ambiguity. Two plus two does make four. I can't know for certainty, metaphysical certainty, that there isn't somebody standing right behind me, that there isn't someone who has, at some moment, even though I've never heard the door open the last 20 minutes, somehow very quietly come in and stood behind me. Um, but I know with moral certainty that that hasn't happened. And if I punch behind me, I don't need to look to see, am I going to hit someone? With, I know enough to have moral certainty that I can make the act of punching without looking to see, am I punching somebody? Whereas, um, just thinking earlier when I was on the train and someone was taking off a coat and nearly hit the, the, the woman uh, in the aisle, that actually, you know, there's all kinds of behaviour and we need to be knowing enough around ourselves to act with moral certainty which isn't the same as metaphysical certainty but enough certainty to be able to act right. 
and that we have it as a because God has made us to be rational beings he wants us to be thinking about what we're doing He do, he's not made us to act by instinct I think I said to you last time that there are some people who sometimes say to me as a priest oh, you shouldn't think about these things too much father um, which almost always is, is a, a kind of cover for um, just just leave me where I am without exposing what's, what wrong I'm doing um, just don't it's better not to think about these things too much. And there is a, you know, back to what I said about with virtue, there's, a, there's an excess and deficiency in almost all human behaviour in terms of there's a too much and a too little way we can do it. You can obsess with thinking about things, which can be a type of scrupulosity, where I'm so paralysed with obsessing about thinking every aspect that I'm not able to do anything and then actually that failure to do anything is in itself a failure um, so that we reach this stage of having enough knowledge to be morally certain and therefore to proceed without obsessing about knowing, 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 knowing in a way that actually stops us doing good which becomes an excuse or a compulsion, um, but it could be an excuse, um, but that it's not proper either way. Yeah, I, I suppose, I'm just, it, it, it is, does just all theory have any place within Catholic teaching? In the um, it is Catholic teaching. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Right, it is. Yeah. So, so the criteria within it, because is, is not warfare the death of people? Intrinsically morally. Um, we'll come on to killing people later to the session. <laughs> uh, so um, it's, 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 it's a good question. Okay. Um, and to say, well, war is the lesser of two evils, is is the wrong answer. Um, there's another there's another way of looking at the situation. Um, okay, on to page three. And here I noted earlier this today the question of how we define theft. Um, so this is one of the examples we're going to look at now. So the object. So this is this criteria here, and this is what most of the debate in this debate goes on about. Um, everyone's clear that a bad intention makes the act bad. The question is, are there some means that in themselves you can say are evil and therefore you cannot do, regardless of a good intention? Page three, what is the object? It's the means to the end, sometimes called the proximate end to the final end. But to define it more precisely is actually more difficult. Um, I've given William May's definition here uh, under A. The object is a material event specified by a good, grasped and willed by the agent as a means. Then a series of examples. A good object, sexual intercourse as a material event with your spouse, a good. So simply saying sexual intercourse hasn't actually described it enough to give you enough knowledge what is the objects that we're concerned with here. A bad object of adultery, 
sexual intercourse, the material event, with someone else's spouse. You have defined the action, the object, sufficiently to be able to say that is always intrinsically evil. Next example, the bad object of rape. Sexual intercourse as a material event against the will of another. Again, simply saying that you have described the object completely enough to say this is always evil, it is intrinsically evil. Then the bad object of theft. Taking another's property, the material event, against the reasonable will of the owner. So that you need that clarification of the reasonable will of the owner as the good that specifies the material event of taking another's property. Another bad object, killing someone as a material event in jealousy. In contrast to the good object of killing someone, the material event in self-defence. Different bad objects, murder. Again, killing someone, the material event, without due cause. In the example, theft, taking property, a neutral object, against the reasonable will of the owner. Note, against the reasonable will of the owner implies that the owner has a duty to allow a starving person to eat his food. I.e. a starving person does not commit theft if he takes the food. We discussed earlier some length. Thus that all moral objects that are intrinsically evil are understood to be specified. So they're not just a material event, but with some specification that describes them. You're with me so far? And you can see that there, need, there needs to be clarity and specification, specificity in what we're describing here. And that if you describe something inaccurately, you're going to get a very different set of results. Now the problem B here with proportionism, which as I've said before was condemned in 1993, they changed the definition of the object. And by changing that, it suddenly became possible to do anything if there was the right proportion of reason. So they said, well, actually, no. We're going to say that the object is the material event, simply put. Veritas of Splendor uh, rejected that description of the object as a material event, saying, by the object of a given moral act, then one cannot mean a process or an event of a merely physical order to be assessed on the basis of its ability to bring about <coughs> a given state of affairs in the outside world. Veritas of Splendor thus complains that proportionalism has an inadequate understanding of the object of moral action. <coughs> I've noted, however, while Veritas of Splendor condemns the proportionalist definition of the object, it does not commit us to any particular alternative definition and does not itself offer a definition of the object. So it is the practice of the church to condemn heresy, even though, if we think in terms of philosophy, there's a plurality of different philosophies that might articulate orthodox doctrine in slightly different packaging, even though some philosophies do end up being rejected, there's no one single philosophy that will ever do adequate um, 
that will ever be adequate for the truth of everything that is God. So the church rejects some things, but it doesn't mean she requires any particular philosophical school in its terminology. So even the doctrine of transubstantiation, the church commends to us as articulating what the church believes, but transubstantiation itself isn't the doctrine. The doctrine is the real presence. That makes sense as a distinction. So the church doesn't tell us this is the way philosophically to define the object, but it does say proportionalism's definition of the object is inadequate. And it's inadequate simply because it permits things that the tradition has always rejected. So continuing on the page there, intrinsically evil acts, question mark. How the act is, how the object is defined will affect whether or not it's possible for there to be objects that are intrinsically evil. For example, St. Thomas defined the act before he went on to evaluate it morally. William May complains that the proportionist definition of the object conceals rather than reveals what the person is doing. And the key thing there, as I said in bold, is not all objects are capable of being ordered to a good end. What the church is saying, thinking about the example of contraception, is that contraception simply isn't capable of being ordered to a good end. So the conclusion of all this, um, John Paul II says, acts which in the church's moral tradition have been termed intrinsically evil, they are such always and per se, in other words, on account of their very object, and quite apart from the ulterior intentions of the one acting and the circumstances. What this means is that the primary source of the morality of the act is the object. Because you get to the means before you get to the end, so this therefore is the primary um, component in assessing the morality of an act. And in the same way, or an analogous way, that matter is the element of mortal sin that you can list in the abstract, objectively, before you're considering whether somebody knows what they're doing or consents to it, the objects of human behavior are the bits that are abstractly identified, um, and some of which are intrinsically So we're all following so far. Now, you've all heard of the principle of double effects. Um, I'm pretty certain, uh, so we're now on to page four, uh, that many of you will have heard of this all wrong. Um, and it's, um, you know, when I read secular writers, they will often say, well, Catholics say the principle of double effect, blah, blah, blah. Um, and they'll almost always say something about it that isn't what a Catholic would say at all. Um, so I want to spell out for you um, what it means um, as a Catholic sees it. Um, what we're talking about in general 
Um, there is one act, and there are two effects. There's a good effect, and there's an evil effect. So you are doing the action, and there are two effects. Um, now, what circumstances, what conditions would have to be in play for it to be acceptable for you to do something that has, as one of its effects, an evil effect? This is what the principle of double effect looks at. And the key thing, as I've said at the top of the page, the key point is that foreseeing does not imply intending. Just because I know, I see, I expect that there will be this effect, doesn't necessarily mean I intend it. That I might be intending this effect, and this side effect will happen at the same time, and I know it will happen, but there might be a reason to accept that. Like collateral damage. Yes, collateral damage. Um, when someone's dying, you know, giving them dire morphine to take away the pain, which is and both of those are classic examples. So um, collateral damage is actually um, the military term for um, the principle of double effect. And the use of painkillers shortening someone's life um, is another classic example. Though, um, if you read old textbooks from the 1950s, they will refer to painkillers as shortening someone's life. For the last decade or so, there's been a lot of um, a lot of studies that have shown, in in many cases, painkillers will actually extend someone's life. Mm. Um, I guess in part, you you would guess just because life becomes more tolerable, and so sort of the strain of pain on the body wears them out less. It's science. It's, I mean, it's, Worked in palliative care a lot recently. There's a it's a whole panoply of drug regimes, yeah. not just one. Exactly, exactly. And um, yeah. But doesn't that usually not strive to keep a fish alive? <coughs> alive. Yeah. Yes, that yeah. Would you accept? We're, we're not going to look at that today, but yeah. The um, another classic one given is um, when the fetus. Uh, Gets me misplaced. Um, we're going to look later oh, on, sorry, later on this page. So let's okay. let, let's go th- go through the page. I've got another cue. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> so, top of page four. Then, principle of double effect. PDE is its abbreviated. Key point: foreseeing does not imply intending. The principle of double effect indicates how we can sometimes foresee evil without intending. While he did not name the principle as such, St. Thomas Aquinas is credited with introducing the principle of double effect to moral theology. He articulated it in his discussion of the permissibility of self-defense in the Summa Theologica. The principle deals with a scenario in which one action will have two effects, one good, one bad. How might one judge that the action was permitted? Four conditions apply though these conditions have been variously formulated. First condition, the action contemplated must in itself 
be morally good or morally indifferent. So this is the action. Either good or morally neutral. Second, the bad effect must not be directly intended. I.e. if he could, the agent would prefer to obtain the good effect without the evil effect. So if I do something good and my mother-in-law dies, and actually I'm rather happy about it, um, <laughs> then actually you fail on this condition. Yeah. So if you could do it without the evil effect, you would do it without the evil effect. You don't intend the evil. Three, the good effect must not be the direct causal result of the bad effect. So in the chain of what's happening, it's not that the bad effect causes the good effect. Because that would then imply actually you were choosing the evil as the means. And fourthly, um, the act itself must be proportionate to the end intended. So proportionalism ran with this one word and developed a whole theory and ignored everything else. Um, proportionate to the end intended and not have effects beyond what is proportionate to that intended. I've noted, St. Thomas did not say proportionate to the evil effect, rather proportionate to the end. Though many, if not most, scholars have interpreted him as saying that this last condition is the most difficult to define, and it has been frequently noted it was vague in St. Thomas's original formulation. Now, just because something is difficult to define, <coughs> this is a principle to guide us in a marginal set of human behaviours where there are two effects. And it's better to have a principle to guide us here rather than say, well, that bit's vague, so we'll just be better off with no principle at all. So this is a principle to guide us on the edge of moral clarity, where admittedly things aren't as clear as they are in other things, but it's better to have some clarity rather than none. Okay, I've then given three examples. So the first example, medical example. A pregnant woman being treated for cancer of the uterus with chemotherapy. Now, if the chemotherapy is targeted at the mother, but has the side effect of killing the child in the womb, then the analysis goes like this. Point one, the action of the chemotherapy itself is morally good. The death of the child isn't intended, and the death of the child doesn't cause the cancer to be cured. Noted also, the chemotherapy is targeted at the mother's cancer. It's not targeted at the child. And fourthly, the treatment is proportionate to the fatal illness of the cancer. Note, however, that such cancer treatments for pregnant women are increasingly targeted in such a way, such a specific manner, that the child does not face the risk that would have been the case in earlier medical treatments. But even under those earlier treatments, um, two effects, the act itself is good, the evil effect doesn't cause a good effect, um, it is permitted. Next example. So, somewhat curiously, 
The scenario in which St. Thomas developed this principle is a more tenuous application of it. Tenuous because the first condition seems to be something of a stretch, i.e. is it reasonable to describe the act in itself as saving one's life? In St. Thomas's example of killing in self-defence, in the scenario envisaged, one's own life could not have been saved by a less drastic means of defence. This fact renders the analysis as follows. Firstly, the act in itself is saving one's own life. The bad effect is killing the assailant and is not directly intended. Thirdly, the death of the assailant is not the direct cause of one's own life being saved. Fourthly, the violence used that results in the death of the assailant is proportionate to the saving of one's own life if less violence would not have sufficed. And then I've said, it should be noted that the Catholic tradition has always upheld the morality of killing in self-defence. The task of moral theologians is to explain in their analysis how the tradition can permit it. Now, before we turn the page, um, so a few things here. You are defending your life with the minimum amount of force necessary to save your life. Sometimes that minimum amount of force is nonetheless fatal for the assailant. If I could incapacitate the assailant in a way that didn't kill him, then I have no grounds for killing him. So what saves my life is him being incapacitated. That's what causes my life to be saved. If, in the circumstances, the only way I can incapacitate him is to kill him, then that becomes an acceptable level of violence. But it's his being incapacitated that causes the good effect of my life being saved. It's not his being killed that causes my life to be saved. Do you see that distinction? And that's also what helps clarify what level of violence I should use. Mm. I'm aiming to incapacitate. I am not in a state of fear, hating him and killing him. That wouldn't be the moral analysis. Even if, psychologically speaking, I might act or have so little time to think in my action, I might act out of fear and intend to kill him, not intend to incapacitate him. Um, but then I'm not having the time to act with that freedom that would give a, a better moral, um, or I'm trying to say, that my moral culpability would be diminished by the very lack of time that I had to make that decision. Is this theory confined just to an individual, or could it be extended to a nation? Well, this is the just war theory is applying that to the whole nation. Um, it works both ways. Uh, Yes, it's clearer with the individual, yes. um, but each act within war has to apply the principle of double effect. 
So when we mentioned collateral damage earlier, um, Saddam Hussein has his weapons of mass destruction and he has deliberately built a hospital all around it. Um, well, I take out with a distant missile his weapons of mass destruction and I kill the people in the hospital. But because the weapons of mass destruction are such a huge evil with their capacity to kill so many people and in such a horrific manner, the collateral damage of the relatively small number of people in the hospital is acceptable. Now, of course, it turned out he didn't have weapons of mass destruction, but um, it was a rationale, a, a valid rationale for going to war, if it had been true. Oh, Jack Power fit into that? Um, By the um, killing of one person. Well, it's the means to the end thing, isn't it? it that, that's means to the end, yeah. whereas he fails the first condition, yeah. that the act in itself was killing someone. Um, killing someone in order that they would be dead and hand over their dead body. He couldn't say that the act was actually saving thousands of others. Only with a yeah. very elaborate <laughs> sleight of hand. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how relevant this is, but my cousin who lives in America, in Florida, and lives in carries a concealed weapon. Mm -hmm. Tells me that in Florida, if, um, if someone attacks him, he can legally shoot mm -hmm. and not be impacted by the law. But now they've recently changed the law so that if you feel you are under attack, you can legally shoot someone. Mm -hmm. He said, however, they does get mitigated if you shot a 93-year-old woman <laughs> and you claim that you shot her because you felt threatened by her. You know, there, there are nuances right. like right. that. But it's kind of the circumstances there, the more and more people feeling threatened is getting now cased for in law by allowing people who feel threatened to shoot someone. And therefore the definition of moral act, and he is a Roman Catholic, the mm. definition of the moral act is distorted by the land. I'm not sure it is distorted. So, in this country, if someone broke into my presbytery and I shot them, and I then argued that that was the minimum force I needed, um, that wouldn't seem very likely because it's very rare in this country for a burglar to have a gun because there's relatively few guns in society. Whereas in America, if someone breaks into my presbytery, actually it's quite likely they've got a gun because statistically there are so many guns over there. So for me to shoot him, the balance of likelihood, it becomes a much more um, proportionate response because the question of proportion does depend on, the, on things like the context you're in, how many guns there are around in general. Now, the Florida example, therefore, does show a, um, a vicious cycle that can develop that way. Um, but that at any given moment in your assessing of it, actually, those circumstantial factors are part of what proportion is 
is assessing. While I lived in America just over a decade ago, there was a, a quite noted case of a priest who shot someone who broke into his presbytery. Um, as I noted it more than my contemporaries did, because to me as an English priest, it seems so mm. unthinkable. Um, but uh, what amazed me was just how many of my American friends over there thought that actually that's thoroughly reasonable. Um, it's the notion of the preemptive strike, which is allowed for in civil law in this country. Um, and I, I think you can attack first to protect yourself, basically. And I think just war theory would allow a preemptive strike in certain circumstances. Um, we wouldn't allow you to go and shoot one of the comments now, just in case. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine you can enforce a pretty decent security system. <laughs> when you say um, Protestantism is, 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 is also condemned, um, are there still priests who are sort of upholding it, or is it, is it, would you say that uh, generally it's accepted, the condemnation is the condemnation isn't accepted um, by many. So there are, and I won't name names, but so you will hear some people say, well, Veritatis Splendor um, just fails to appreciate the subtleties in proportionalism. So they will say that it attacked a position that isn't really there. Um, what has more or less happened is you no longer meet people who call themselves proportionalists, even if what they're articulating is the same position. Um, so you just need to be careful in listening to what they're saying. But the word proportionalism, the effect of this is that that's largely gone. The, the other dynamic, though, that has changed since the over 20 years since that came out is you know, the younger generation of priests are increasingly orthodox and at, at home with the tradition. Uh, the older priests that were, generally speaking, proportionists are just dying off. So for that reason, it's becoming less common. Not because people, oh, the Pope has said so, therefore we accept it. Um, Here's kind of one other thing. Um, In just law theory, the one of the, one of the, one of the crises. Not perfect. Not perfect. All right, we're going to take a pause there for 10 minutes before we come back and look at the page six onwards cooperation and evil.